Welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap. And this week, we've got just another amazing guest. Bradley Limer of Unconventional Ventures comes on to talk with us about the future of fintech. He has experience within large banks, community banks, any type of bank. He's got experience with fintech across the board. And what he has seen is incredible. The impact that banks are making and how banks some of the hardest companies to change and innovate within, he was able to create innovation. And wealth managers can learn something from how banks have started to innovate. And also, we talk about his new book, Beyond Good, which is talking about how technology is leading a purpose-driven business revolution. If you're a fan of Simon Sinek, this is a similar theme. It's fun, intriguing conversation all the way from Silicon Valley. Bradley Limer on Bridging the Gap to help us continue to innovate with technology in our space. Now let's take a listen with Bradley Limer. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Bradley Limer, great to have you on Bridging the Gap. Thank you. How are you? How's your week going? How's your day going? How's everything in this chaotic times we're in? You know, th- things are as good as they could be. You know, I, I'm just happy that as the new year uh, is into the school year already that our schools are open and you know we're not socked with snow like some people and some of my friends back east so things are going good that is uh that's so true i actually was you know talking with a friend just north of me so i'm in atlanta and just north of me in tennessee and down south we don't get snow but they got slammed with some snow recently and you know it was for us down south it was like a blizzard it looked like you know still snowing so yeah you are in a, a good spot and schools are still somewhat shut down here as we start the new year so you're you're winning on that side but it's uh it's definitely an interesting time for sure <laughs> yeah the last couple of years have been anything but normal right they have been leading into your name of your company, Unconventional, right? For sure. it's It's been an unconventional time. But I'm really stoked to have you on and, and kind of just get your perspective on what you're seeing because you have such a finger on the pulse within fintech, within you know what's going on in the technology world. And you've had so much experience on that side. You know, For our listeners, can you just give us a quick background of you know, where you where you came from, what you're doing now at Unconventional Ventures and and what you're seeing on the space. And then we'll kind of dive in and, and get some of your perspectives on the world today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a, a marketing analytics background and, and communication background, which, you know, for the first third of my career, I, I built data models and I built, you know, response mechanisms for large scale marketing efforts by City and Bank of America and all these large banks to, to market insurance and other products. And when I when I think about that, it's like, you know, it, it it takes the human element out of everything that you do in financial services to kind of treat large lists of millions of people and who you're going to market and sort of whittling that down and trying to think about profit margins and all the rest. And then the next third of my career was diving in at a very small credit union that served Kaiser Permanente out here. And I ran marketing technology and a lot of stuff in that stack. And I went from a really, really large uh, company um, based out of Tennessee and out of Stanford, Connecticut. And... I went into this 50-person company, which was a credit union that had been around for about 50 years. And I you know, helped them rebrand and helped them really think about what their purpose was. And it was right around the dot-com boom. And everybody was like going into tech and everybody was like then running out of tech. <laughs> and it's the, the, the intent of you know, spending some time in a credit union was never to like stay in financial services. That was never my goal. I figured I'd probably be there for a few years and then get out. But Ended up being in a credit union, ended up being a community bank out here in California. And then, you know, from a lot of technology experience and a lot of working with, you know, customer facing applications from 
you know, your digital banking stuff as it was going, building out websites. I got into working with startups. And the more and more I got into working with startups, I realized, you know, banks and wealth management companies and all the rest, they have choices in terms of who they partner with. And they have choices about, you know, not necessarily just taking what's there. They can actually help create the future uh, with these systems and help serve people better. So that led into this role at uh, Banco Santander, where I led innovation for the U.S. for many, many years and helped them stand up their investment firm uh, that was working with fintech startups, which now has invested in close to 30, 35 different startups. Mm. And, and my role there was to you know really take what was happening in fintech over the last 10, 15 years and bring that into the bank and understand how we could actually serve our customers better. So it's I've seen a lot of things and, and we've done a lot of things with a lot of different partners in that space. So it's been a ride. Yeah, it's so interesting. I tend to feel, and I'd like your perspective on it, you know, in Atlanta, we were talking before we started recording about how Atlanta is a hub for fintech. And when I think about the Atlanta hub for fintech, I always think about payment processing. And I think that a lot of fintech is around banking because there is such an opportunity, I think, for disruption in banking but where, I mean, because it's all about payments and, 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 and how you can do payments, but there isn't, you know, that's where it seems to be a lot of it. You know, there's not a ton in wealth management. There's a little bit of innovation. You can think about robo-advisors and such, but is it fair to say that, you know, fintech really is kind of like bank tech from that standpoint? I mean, that's like the majority of it where it's really helping banks or, or do you see it differently from your perspective? Because I'm just a naive, you know, looking at it from an outsider perspective, you're on the inside. Well, you know, when, when I, I think about the genesis of fintech, you know, it was really sort of in the mid-2000s going forward when the web started opening up the possibilities for decentralizing and then recentralizing different parts of financial services. I would say that, you know, the value of banking isn't, you know, it never has been the bank itself. It isn't necessarily even the personal relationships. It's moving money from point A to point B and growing that money and protecting it. And you could do that with technology. And that's an awful lot of, you know, what I've spent the last couple of years with, with what we built with, you know, our firm. And, you know, the, the value prop of fintech is to break apart this long-term sort of, you know, monopoly on what banking services are. You have to remember, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, we had 26,000 banks serving the needs of this country alone. And that has whittled down to less than 9,000 if you include credit unions and less than mm. 5,000 if you just look at banks. And then you think, you know, how are we serving more people with fewer institutions? Well, FinTech has stepped in, not just with payments, not with just, you know, infrastructure and behind the scenes stuff, but front facing, you know, across the board for lending, wealth management, you know, consumer, consumer products of all kinds. And, you know, there's, there's so many more business models now that mm -hmm. have really successfully driven the changes in banking. And, you know, the, the best banks in terms of adapting those new sort of ways of doing things are the biggest five or six again, because these companies are investing in fintechs, they're learning from fintechs. And um, I think wealth management is doing that as well in some cases. Yeah. And you and you think about, you know, I, I think there's so many parallels between wealth management and banking beyond just being in financial services, right? I think that there's a parallel in terms of the risk tolerance or openness to new innovation, right? And so I'm curious because, I mean, you worked on, you know, Banking side, you worked at Santander, uh, large bank, community banks, credit unions, and it's hard sometimes to get innovation started within there. I'm just curious because I think we can learn from that within wealth management is what was the driver? How did you help to inspire change and how is it being done today where banks are you know, 
investing in fintech? What led to that charge? Was it just competition or was it a change of culture? And how did we go about changing that culture? Well, I think one of the, the things that's most interesting about that journey is that you know, when I when I first started working in financial services proper, not just as partner from the outside, you know, a fifty person firm can make decisions and move. You know, a a company of about a thousand people, which was the community bank, and now I'd call them a pretty big regional bank at about twenty five thirty billion, they can make decisions. But there's a lot of people that have you know input into that decision. Mm-hmm. I remember you know projects like just changing out digital banking to a non core provider took you know, probably nine to 12 months just to make that decision. And then when you get into a bank as large as Bank of Santander, you know, which is about the size of Wells Fargo, you think about, okay, well, there's 20 different regions around the world that they have a pretty big presence in. They're the largest lender in Europe. And they had a pretty, really big, you know, presence in the US in terms of the East Coast. And it's like the tail wagging the dog. And you have to bring, you know, the numbers with you and you have to bring an army with you of supporters. And the thing that's most interesting about a place like Santander is I would have most support from you know people underneath that wanted things to be changed, meaning the people that were in the front lines, the people that were in the risk teams, amazingly enough. Hmm. And um, the, the people that wanted the most change weren't the people at the top. You know, the people at the top, they, they're concerned about, you know, shareholder growth. They're concerned about the quarterly earnings. They're concerned about, you know, they're concerned about their next couple of years. And the people below just want to serve people. You know, they want to do the best job they can as, you know, as quickly and efficiently as they can and make things better. Mm-hmm. So I had a newsletter at, at Santander that eventually good, good part of 20, 20, 20 some odd thousand people subscribed to, which said, this is what's happening this week. This is what we're doing. This is what we're investing in. And it's that kind of communication inside a big beast of 160,000 people that start to move the, you know, move the needle in terms of acceptance about how we should be looking outside. Such an interesting perspective of taking that because, you know, it's a matter of the, you know, because I think about like the leadership, they're worried about risk levels, right? Like what's going to happen? You know, they don't want to hurt earnings or shareholders growth, right? So they don't want to take the risk when, you know, it's better off, don't rock the boat, right? If it ain't broke, why fix it? But the people that are on the front lines that are doing it are the ones that are like, I want to become more efficient. I see it. And too often leadership doesn't listen to that. And I think something can be taken from that within innovation inside wealth management because it's like, go to the people that are doing the job day in and day out and get the support from them. And that will swell up to the top, who's the economic buyer, the decision maker to help with that. And I think that it also for leadership and wealth management, it's like, hey, if you're a leader, listen to your people and right. let them make the decisions and let them fail at times, make a, a decision as long as it doesn't put your clients at risk, right? That's what it's all about. The, the thing that I always asked you know, my teams and <laughs> I, I pushed management on, regardless of what room I was in, was, okay, what do you use to manage your money? What do you think about when it comes to money? Where do you go to get credit? Where do you go to get your information about the market? What do you care about? And you know, the answer for people that are making you know, six, seven figures sitting in a boardroom very, very different than people that are in the front lines, very, very different than people that are managing products, regardless of the size of the institution. And, you know, you get to hear things like, well, I'm I'm moving money this way, you know, I'm using PayPal, or I'm using Venmo, or I'm using, you know, this other form, or I'm I'm investing with a robo advisor, or (laughs) I'm, I'm starting to dabble in cryptocurrencies. Well, we started hearing that six or seven years ago. I mean, had I bought Bitcoin when I first heard about it in 2013, 2014, I wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be on a you beach You wouldn't have somewhere. come on the podcast still, even if you're a multi-billionaire? 
Well, you know, may, maybe I would I would be pushing it. I'd, I'd be pumping it up or something, especially this week. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing, you know, for an advisor that has an assistant in their office. I'm just going to say that that assistant likely is going to be younger, more junior. Ask them how they move their money, how they save their money, and, and ask them about how they manage their finances. Who do they bank with and why? Do they care about things like, you know, what the board is made up of? Or do they even know? Do they care about ESG and SDG investments? Do they care about, you know, whether their bank has uh, large investments in oil and all these other things? Do they care about it? And, you know, if the answer is even a little bit yes, or if they frame it and say, well, you know, I'm putting some of my money aside for this, this, or this, or I'm concerned about things like I'm never going to be able to afford a house, pay attention. Mm-hmm. And make those, and let that lead some strategic decision making that that you that you're doing as a firm. I, I love that idea, and I think that firms are so hesitant of that because they're just like, oh, those are just the younger generation with technology, but they are the ones that are the leading edge that will you'll eventually get caught up to. It's like Facebook. I mean, think about Facebook. The earliest adopters were all the college kids and high school kids. And now the biggest users of Facebook are the retirees because they finally caught up, right? It was just like a six-year lag. It's just a six-year lag with leadership. Uh, so so with, TikTok for grandparents next. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to see. I can't wait for that six-year lag on TikTok and see uh, grandparents on there, um, which they probably already are, to be honest. They, but I'm probably not are, on it yet. I'm, I'm the lagger on that one. So so tell us. So you went, now you're, you're running Unconventional Ventures. Tell us a little bit about what your kind of mission is at Unconventional Ventures and 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 what y'all are you're focused on going forward with with the firm? Yeah, so we've been doing this for a good three years now. I co-founded this with Theo Lau, and she came out of AARP, and she'd been working with fintechs, working on the aging population and different you know solutions for that group. And you know she was really wanting to come out of that and look at more of the market and look at how AI is changing things and look at how technology is focused on you know really improving financial lives and. We've been fortunate over the last three years to be able to work with a combination of, you know, various, very small entry, you know, starting fintechs from the ground up that are, you know, really trying to improve financial conditions for more people. And then also working with, you know, established companies, tech startups, large banking providers. And what we do is it's a combination of, you know, strategy, consulting, and um, just taking what we've learned to matchmake solutions. And, you know, that has allowed us to continue to see that the companies that are coming up collectively, I think, are, are providing more ways for people to access financial services than what we've ever had before. So when you think about it, there's about 1.7 billion people across the planet out of nearly 8 billion now that are unbanked, completely unbanked. But when you look at the scheme of things and you look at the, you know, so we've, we've traveled around and we've been on stages and learned from people from China and India and all throughout Southeast Asia, through Europe and everywhere else. And when you look at every single market, it's about first establishing access into that system. So it's payments, it's credit, it's providing a way for people to sort of, you know, prove their financial worth in order to grow businesses and these kind of things. And then you go into from access to sort of an optimization and that includes everything from growing savings and growing opportunities for their businesses to grow. And then you get into investments. And one of the things that I learned so concretely from places like Santander is that, you know, in working in, in markets like Mexico and in working through Latin America, where they have a huge presence, building up the ability for people to have that financial infrastructure around them, whether it's from traditional banks or from fintech partners, is incredibly important. You know, you look at Ant Financial, Ant Group in, in Asia, 
you look at Nubank in Brazil, you look at a ton of different startups from Britain throughout Europe and Eastern Europe, and you look throughout Southeast Asia, and it's a lot of these super apps that are coming together and a lot of these different business models that are simply trying to provide day-to-day services alongside banking that simply facilitate your financial lives. And what's changed is that in the last decade, you've had almost 700 million people come into that formal financial system. Mm. And so I want to I want to take that back for your listeners and say, okay, in your community, you know, whether you live in a, a town of a couple million people or a town of 20,000 people, you're serving a sliver of that financial populace. What else is happening in your market? What else is like a need for your market? Whether you directly are involved, you should at least know what's happening with the constituency around you of potential people that you could serve. Because I, you know, I guarantee you that there'll be something in there for your business to learn from. Hmm, that is so true. I mean, I think, you know, to, to my, my belief is that we all live, I mean, and I, I think a lot of other people believe it, we live in a bubble, right? We live around what we see and what we see is the reality that we know. And that is the reality we build in our minds and perceive for everybody. But that's not necessarily the case. And there's so much opportunity to go out and get uncomfortable and be in other environments and learn from those individuals. Because I mean, I fall in that trap all the time. I'm like, you know, you know, when you say, you know, how many people are unbanked, like to me, that sounds like, well, I don't know anybody that's unbanked in, 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 in my core circle, but that's not reality. Right. And, and you have to go and experience it. And then you can find opportunities to really help push things forward to provide access and provide opportunity and, and also innovation from that standpoint, which I think is so true. Well, and, and I think it comes down to, you know, sort of an empathy for, for more people and an understanding of what community really means. And we're seeing that an awful lot in banking right now. One of the fintech sort of trends over the last several years, and I, it's more than a trend, I would say that it's, it's really finally, you know, playing into the needs of new communities. But we're seeing fintechs that are neobanks that are sort of rising up to, you know, meet the needs of everybody from people that are most recently in prison that can't access financial services coming out, mm-hmm. people that are part of the LGBTQ community, people that are immigrants to different communities, people that are musicians, believe it or not, they have very unique financial needs. You know, you name it down down the list. And then you have other large fintechs that have been well-funded, like Aspiration out here in, in Southern California, which is geared toward, you know, people caring a lot about their sort of economical, uh, sorry, environmental footprint. And how their actions and their investments and their day-to-day banking activities and the, the people that they choose to interact with in terms of the businesses they buy from and, and what that means in the long term. So the, the, the niche is not a niche anymore. You know, these are every single one of those opportunities to serve is potential millions of people. So, so I always talk when I, when I talk to wealth management groups. I say to advisors, I say, what are those core groups in your community that you could serve? Because one, you might have a direct connection to them, right? So it's it's not just that, you know, I live in this community because where you serve people no longer matters. It's it's how you serve them and how you connect with them and the service you provide to them. Technology provides for that. And it doesn't matter where people live. I mean, you could be serving me and I'm in Sri Lanka. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it's just a matter of opening your eyes to learning about new ways of doing that, right? And I think that that's where wealth management can continue to grow and that I'm inspired that we are starting to grow is that, you know, 
we don't have to do business the way that it's always been done. There's new ways that we can do business because of innovations that have happening. You know, you just think about like, for instance, crypto, right? I, I still, to be honest, I don't quite understand it, but it doesn't mean I shouldn't learn about it and I shouldn't just push it off, right? It still has an opportunity to be something to help a segment of the market, maybe not the core clients that we've served in the past, but maybe it does have something and it, you should learn about it and be open-minded enough to accept something like that as opposed to just shunning it off and then 10 years later coming back and being like, well, we probably should have used some of that in the portfolio, whether or not it makes sense now. But it's like those types of things. We have to have an open mind to how we utilize these advancements of technology to better serve more people in the way that they want to be served, which could be different than how we have served them, which I think is what you're alluding to on your side of it. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, was this something, I'm just, you know, your, your, your kind of journey is an incredible journey. Was this some, your journey that you always wanted to go on? I mean, what is it that you grew up wanting to be? Did you want to be in fintech or in technology growing up? I mean, how, how did you get to this path from starting? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley and I grew up in the formative years of Silicon Valley. So I was here, you know, coming of age in the 80s and 90s and going to school at Berkeley here where, you know, the rivalry, rivalry with Stanford was real so many different ways. You know, it wasn't just on the field. It was for share of mindset in terms of how venture capital was going to go forward. And just being around the money and the startup sort of mentality over the last, you know, 30 years in the Valley has really always sort of connected me to technology. And I think that's, you know, that's a natural sort of curiosity of mine is how technology is really going to change the way we, we live our daily lives. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, I, I, I grew up in, a, in an airline family, I'll say. My dad worked at United Airlines for 37 years. And I think the one thing that I've always taken from those travels that I've been fortunate to have throughout my life, and especially the last seven or eight years through business, has been to understand, you know, what else is happening in the world and understand that, you know, the way that we live life here in the U.S., and especially in this little bubble of San Francisco, is not how most people have an opportunity to live their life. And so, you know, from early days on, you know, traveling to Japan and Hong Kong and throughout Asia and throughout Europe in those formative years really, you know, gave me pause to say, you know, what we do matters. You know, what we choose to do in life matters. And I've always been, you know, once I got into financial services, I said, how can we make banking better? And that's the premise of a lot of what we do, because we say, who could you serve more? How could you serve an aging population better? How could you serve the transition between that aging population and the next generation better? How could you understand that next generation better? Mm. And, you know, it is, it's a lot of curiosity. It's a lot of, you know, research and, and reading and just talking to people. You know, once in the before times when people would like do ride shares and stuff like that, how many times did you talk to your, you know, person that was driving you around or what have you? And, and that's already privilege right there, just having someone drive you around <laughs> um, and talk to them like a human, you know, ask them like, what's going on? Like, what's their real, you know, hustle? Where are they going? And that led me to work with companies like a company like Stuvo, which is working on a very, very large gig platform that says, you could go ahead and, and, and ride or do deliveries or that type of thing, but you could also do these other things because we're going to help you optimize your opportunities to grow income. And everybody should understand that these companies exist because the, the whole social dynamic has changed. You know, it's no longer, you know, we get into a job, we work 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, and then retire and we're dead. Well, <laughs> especially the last two years, 
with remote work and the opportunity for some, again, this is a privileged some, to be able to work and be home and have stuff delivered to you and have food delivered to you and all that fun stuff. Well, that's not how the rest of the world works. But there's more opportunities now to grow your income, to invest, you know, to do banking differently. And so I always gravitated to that. It's mm-hmm. like, how can you serve more people easier? And how can you get more people to like have a life of privilege or at least mm-hmm. a life where they have a little less struggle? Mm-hmm. And so hence FinTech, hence banking, and let's make that better. What's been the biggest challenge on that journey? Because I think that that's such an amazing, you know, desire, right? And I, I can see there's tons of challenges on that on that path. Because I mean, I think that you have to have, you know, the buy-in from the individual, which I think is there. You have to have the buy-in from the, you know, the end product builder and company. And there has to be a market for profitability and to, to make, you know, a profit or money from that side. So what in, have you seen as the biggest challenge to like, reaching that and and when do you think that you're going to sit back and say dang we did it like we got there like i I don't know if it'll ever be done but the biggest challenge and when do you think you'll be at that pinnacle well i I always say that you can't be what you can't see you know and so the the sort of empathy driven model of business to change the mindset from the the way that people are educated in business schools to the way that people are running companies today it starts with putting people in a room and getting that understanding of who they're there to serve, why they're there to serve. And for me, you know, coming from sort of an analytical background, I use numbers to tell that story. You know, I rip apart a a customer base and I say, look, this is who you're serving and how, and this is your community, or this is the opportunity that you're missing in the long-term profitability and the relationships that you're building and in the way that, you know, you could bridge that. And so I think telling a story, leveraging numbers and leveraging sort of outside forces. And in this case, it's sort of that force of both fintech and sort of the changing business model that technology companies are bringing in because they're also getting into banking in big ways the last five to 10 years. And, you know, for me, it's the, the challenge of when do we get there is, is the, is the ship of financial services steering just a little bit, you know, less than due north? you know, less than sort of the complacent way that it had been sort of floating. Are we serving more people today than we were 10 years ago? Absolutely, yes. Are we optimizing the finances of people better than we did 10 years ago? Absolutely, yes. Now, the question that I have for founders, especially, is is what you're doing making a difference and does it matter? And are you getting in any way, shape, or form because of the venture money that you took off of your original mission and goals? Because now you're forced to look at profitability, you're forced to cut corners, you're forced to make decisions that actually aren't in the best interest of your customers. That's when I have challenges. And, you know, we've seen it with Robinhood and some other brands. We've seen it with, you know, some very big, you know, sort of mistakes. But in general, I'm an optimist. I have hope. That's the center point of the book that we wrote and published last year called Beyond Good. And I, I really do think that you know, things are getting better financially for people. But the challenge is at the same time, we're seeing a huge divide in terms of income opportunity and of wealth and not just this country, but across geographies. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but I do think that things have gotten better. I love that. And you mentioned your book, Beyond Good. So tell us a little, I mean, I, I can understand the inspiration to write it, right? The optimism and, and everything of that nature. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you what inspired you to get the right beyond good and what you hope readers you know get out of it when they read the book 
Yeah. So, so the book itself is is the center point of book of the, of the book. I think is hope. A hope that both technology and purpose can infiltrate business models, and we demonstrate that through companies that have found that purpose and have actually been intentional about you know the way that they're changing their own sort of viewpoint on how financial services can be deployed. I talked about Aspiration Bank earlier, but we have a, a lot of examples about other B Corps, which are really geared towards serving their community and being very transparent about what they're doing in terms of how they serve that community. We profile a lot of companies in there that are changing the way that we should think about how you can serve more people and serving um, people without necessarily having profit at the center of that, because profit will come. It will come long-term because you're doing what's right. And I always think you know, that in the examples that we give, we show that doing right is doing well. And just having a little bit longer term view about the overall financial picture of your customers and clients' lives will always be, you know, a better true north than sort of the trajectory that we're on. It's like looking at the fiduciary model and saying, oh, yeah, well, now we're going to do that because it's in our best interest. Uh, it's also in our client's best interest. But you know what? <laughs> it should have always been in your interest. So the book, you know, it starts out with, you know, sort of a, a basic need check. It's food, water and shelter and how we're doing. Literally food, water and shelter. And how we can, as an industry, you know, get involved in more of our uh, customers' lives. And I give this example in wealth management. And I say, look, regardless of how much assets your client has under management with you, what are you doing to help them live longer and live healthier you know, lives so that the relationship is longer, that the relationship is more real? And I, I give the example a few times. I said, buy every single one of your clients instead of, you know, like a, a box of chocolates or nuts or like some sort of gift basket at the end of the year, buy them an Apple watch and then show them how to use it. And then show them how just 10,000 steps a day is going to make you live longer mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, financial health and physical health go hand in hand. So, you know, my, 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 my only thing for people to, to say is look beyond just banking you know, look, look beyond. And so we, we go from there in the book to, to give a lot of examples of how technology has changed the business model across all of the different facets of, of banking, including wealth management. We have a lot in there about robo-advisors and other companies that have really changed things. But the idea at the end is that it comes down to you and it comes down to sitting in the room of decision makers and saying, okay, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Be the one that raises your hand and says, okay, but why are we doing this and what's in the best interest of our customers, our clients? How are we going to move things forward so that their lives are better? Mm. And that's a lot of the book is just giving examples of companies that do that. It's, uh, it, you know, as you're talking, it resonates a lot with a lot of the Simon Sinek books as well that are out there, right? And, and the purpose-built businesses that focus on, on, on having a true purpose and value to the end client as opposed to the one that's just driven for profit and how they are more sustainable longer term, which is, is I think such a necessary message to get out there. So the more people we can have writing about it, hopefully more entrepreneurs will start feeling that and we'll start having more purpose-built businesses that are impacting and, and having always the client in mind. And we always say, every business always says, well, we always have the client in mind to your point, but is it really, are you making decisions based on them or your bottom line? And a lot of businesses make it based on their bottom line as opposed to the end client necessarily. Well, and, and I, we talk about systems leadership a lot in the book and, and you know, it goes into a lot of what Simon says as well is that when we, when we say things like, you know, we're going to run our business a certain way and then we say, okay, well, the financial health of our community is important. 
And then we do things like, you know, we oppose things like a child tax credit extension, which, or, or, or you know, getting preschool for all four-year-olds, because somehow, you know, that $17 that you're going to have to pay in taxes that, you know, serves four-year-olds somehow is going to be a bad thing. But we do those kind of decisions all the time. You know, we, we make in our mind, you know, that this is about, you know, my rights or me or whatever. And it's, it's not, it's, it's about making things more equal and making opportunities because that four-year-old that's going to get education, we don't know where that four-year-old is going to go. And we need to support kids growing up, you know, a lot differently. We need to, you know, put as much, you know, power into the next generation as we can, because we never know who, who's going to come out of that generation and who's going to help humanity even greater. Mm-hmm. So, you know, personally, everybody has decisions in their company. Everybody has decisions and it all fits in to something that's bigger than ourselves. Yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, I, I want to wrap up with two kind of outside the box questions and, and then let you get back to kind of making your stamp, putting your stamp on the world. You think about where you are today, who, I mean, whether they're in your field or out of your field, I mean, who's been your biggest inspiration to get you to this point, right? When you look back at someone who, who's really inspired you to you know, continue to take this mission forward day in and day out. Well, I mean, I think my work experience in general, it's not necessarily a single person. I can't say, well, Steve Jobs was this or what have you, because I, I read a lot of, you know, sort of fiction and nonfiction across the board. And I think just being inspired by people's ideas, but then taking that into action, you know, the, the conversations that I've had with people that lives have been changed um, because of the products and services that we put into market, because of the fact that we had an advisor, you know, at a, at a small credit union taking care of people in the community. I think that's, you know, to me, the inspiration is seeing intention from people's thoughts and ideas about how to make, you know, their, their world and their communities better actually go into action. And so whether it's, you know, working in a community bank and seeing really, you know, us helping businesses, that business we helped fund, you know, that individual we helped make more wealthy or that individual we helped with that next step. That to me, and now in the work that we do of working with founders every single day and maybe helping them get that next round, you know, at least an initial raise or helping, you know, the, the advisor, um, relationship be a little bit better because we talked about a company that all of a sudden a very large company said, oh, that's a great idea. We should offer that opportunity or those services to our clients. It's that type of influence uh, and those ideas and like giving those examples out that really makes a difference to me. Yeah. More people should be inspired by by those types of ideas that are out there and, and their learnings and, and delve into it. I, I think that that's amazing. You know, and I want you to take your crystal ball out for a second. And you know, you're looking at everything that's out there right now. I mean, what is the that the one thing that's kind of just like you know bubbling up underneath the surface that you just see becoming hugely influential and ultimately successful from a business standpoint, but influential from the impact it has in the financial world right now that that maybe not everybody knows about. I don't know if it's that not everybody knows about, but I think the impact is going to be large. This idea of embedded finance and sort of infrastructure plays in fintech. When you when you take a, a a payment rail, as they say, you know, point A to point B, and you make that disappear, and all of a sudden you have you know the the Target app or you know the the Uber app sort of take that payment. The more that we sort of strip away traditional banking, the more we say you know it's not just payments, it's not just credit, it's 
savings and its investments, its long-term financial health is being sort of taken away from the incumbents. That to me is both exciting in terms of, you know, where things like Web3 and DAO and like all these other sort of like new ideas about decentralizing and then recentralizing banking. It's exciting, but it's terrifying uh, in another way because who's regulating it? You know, so I would actually watch to see how regulators are reacting to everything from what's happening in crypto, what's happening in, you know, things like NFTs and, you know, what will happen with the metaverse and payments there and how people are transacting. How are they going to track all this stuff? You know, how are they going to react to more of banking sort of going under the hood and not floating through banks? And so it's a global phenomenon of that taking away the value of banking and embedding it into another business model that is, again, exciting, but very, very concerning in terms of who's watching, who's the watchdog. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of your, your audience in the next couple of years is going to see more of their clients saying, oh, I want to invest in this new asset class, mm-hmm. or I want to invest not just in crypto, but the underlying assets, you know, that they're powering. So things are changing really, really rapidly, but people need to pay attention to the fact that everything is kind of being ripped from underneath banking. Yeah. I mean, you take away the rails and you start now giving control into new innovations because they don't have to rely on the old school rails. I mean, you just think about what the opportunities are for innovation. It's incredible. It's incredible on that side. Well, Bradley, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to talk with us here on Bridging the Gap. And I'm sure there's going to be a ton of people that are listening that want to continue to follow and be inspired by what you're doing. What's the best way for them to stay in touch, to follow you, get in contact with you if they desire? Yeah, absolutely. So email is bradley at unconventionalventures.com. You could also follow me on Twitter at at Limer, L-E-I-M-E-R. And for the book, go to beyondgoodbook.com or certainly Amazon or your local bookstore. I love it. Thanks so much for everything you're doing, Bradley. And uh, again, thanks for uh, sharing some of your wisdom here with us on Bridging the Gap. Stay well, okay? Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 